Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. In today's seminar, we're hosting Harris Erfan, the author of Heaven's Bankers, a book on Islamic finance. And we're going to be discussing Bitcoin and Islamic finance. Uh, Harris has also written a paper on his perspective as a Muslim and as a Bitcoiner on the connection between Bitcoin and Islamic finance. And I find this topic to be very fascinating and a very interesting one. So I'm delighted to welcome Harris to join us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Harris. Thanks, Dave. So I guess to begin with, could you give us a little bit of an introduction for the uninitiated about what is Islamic finance? Sure. I think when we read about Islamic finance in the press, we tend to get a very simplistic version of it. 
not surprisingly. And most journalists will say, well, it's banking without interest. But actually, that's just an outcome of some of the basic principles. So the primary basic principle is what is the nature of money? The nature of money in the Islamic economic model is somewhat different to the nature of money we see in the modern global financial system today. And in the Islamic economic model, money is merely a medium of exchange rather than a commodity to be traded, which is what it is today. And I think that's the primary point at which we try to derive what Islamic finance is. The next thing I tend to say to people is Islamic finance is about the real economy. It's about real goods and services, real jobs, real wealth creation. So in other words, there's a one-to-one relationship between the financial economy on the one hand and the real economy on the other. Again, I think in the modern financial system, we see this massive divergence between the financial economy on one side with its trillions and trillions of paper that has some kind of underlying relationship with some kind of underlying real economy asset, but sometimes it gets a bit difficult to work that out. So there's meant to be a one-to-one relationship between the financial economy and the real economy. So it's financing the real economy. In other words, finance is a slave and not the master of the real economy. So those are the the two primary things I tend to say. I guess there are some, some other issues around that. Islamic finance is about risk sharing. There shouldn't be an asymmetric relationship between two financial counterparties. Again, in the modern system, we tend to have banks that are clearly the the stronger party in a financing transaction, financing borrowers. And the risk sharing is very asymmetric in that case. So risk sharing is about sharing in the profits and losses of a venture. Uh, There are also other principles around gharar, for example, which is uncertainty. So it would be unjust for two parties to enter into a commercial transaction in which one or both parties are unsure about the outcome. And the classic example that is used is the sale of a pregnant cow. You may buy the cow, but you can't buy the unborn calf because you don't know whether it's going to be delivered or not. And that's quite an important principle because then it, it, it leads on to other things like speculation and gambling and so on. So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what is the Islamic economic model is about. If I had to summarize it in two words, there would be social justice. I think it's about social justice. So I hope that's a sort of a very quick summary. And again, as I say, an outcome of that is that one may not make money on money, and therefore it's not possible to lend at interest. I think, yeah, you make a good point, which is that the interest is the most commonly advertised property of Islamic finance, but it's really more of an implication of the deeper way in which money is treated. And I think the concept, as you describe it, which is you can't make money on money, and that money is not a commodity to be traded for its own sake. Ultimately, in my mind, this is very similar to the principle of hard money. The concept of hard money means that it's money that nobody can make out of thin air. And if nobody can make it out of thin air, then the only way to make it is that you're going to have to find, uh, and in Islam, you know, the money is gold and silver. So you have to dig and try and find them, or you have to find somebody who will sell them to you in exchange for goods and services. So that means your only way of getting money is to serve others. Your only way of getting money is to work hard. Of course, you can speculate, you can prospect for gold and prospect for silver, but that's highly uncertain. And the key property, perhaps, of gold is that it makes prospecting usually uh, ruinous. So gold prospectors generally get wrecked, very common. And I think that's a feature, not a bug, because if mining gold was profitable, everybody would be mining gold and then uh, nobody would be working. But if gold miners continue to get wrecked in a gold economy, then they learn their lesson and then they go and they learn to do something useful with their time. 
Now, a little bit about your personal background. You were involved in the establishment of the Dubai International Financial Center in your role at Deutsche Bank. Can you tell us a little bit more about, first of all, how you got there and what this taught you about Islamic finance? Yeah, so when I was in the UK, I, I started work for Deutsche Bank in the late 90s, having moved from a small British merchant bank, and my skill set was project finance. So that was financing infrastructure projects, because I thought that was something that was a reasonably noble pursuit, even within the financial services industry. This is the building of roads, railways, and infrastructure generally. And I was moved to Dubai to open a, a new office out there as a relatively junior guy in 2001. And in fact, I moved out there two days before 9-11 happened. And of course, as soon as 9-11 happened, a lot of Gulf money was repatriated back from the US and Europe because there was a lot of additional scrutiny on that money. And many Gulf investors who were completely clean, of course, felt that that additional scrutiny was not merited. And that's why there was a flight of money back to the Gulf. And we saw a, a commensurate rise in local stock markets and local real estate markets. So I happened to be there at a time when markets were rising. When I arrived, ostensibly to open the office and to originate new corporate finance business for the bank, what actually happened was a lot of clients came up to us and said, well, it's wonderful that you are here, Deutsche Bank. But now that you're here, we'd like you to do these deals on a Sharia compliant basis. And being investment bankers, we blagged our way through that and said, oh, yeah, sure, we know all about that. But actually, we had to spend quite a considerable amount of time learning at the feet of the scholars. These are the uh, theologians who are essentially lawyers. They provide legal opinions on the contractual compliance of a particular financial or commercial structure. And that's kind of an arcane science or art. I don't know which one it is. And we had to learn the language, the terminology, the methodology of that art. And, you know, we, Deutsche Bank, became very good at that. So we founded the Islamic finance team at Deutsche Bank to service these clients in the Gulf. And we discovered that the leading Islamic scholars, these theologians who certified these transactions, had never previously worked with investment bankers like us. They had worked with local and regional banks usually the middlemen in those banks, the Sharia coordination departments, they called them, who were very deferential to the scholars. Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full, sir. They never really questioned anything they were told. They never really pushed the envelope and said, can we do a product like this? Can we do a product like that? And for the first time, these young, ambitious, motivated investment bankers from a Western investment bank were coming along to the scholars and saying, well, Sheikh, you know, I, I have a great deal of respect for your knowledge on this subject. But I wonder whether it's possible to do this transaction on this particular way. And we were able to robustly discuss and debate with the scholars in a respectful way. And they treated us with a similar respect. And it was a very fruitful and healthy relationship. And I think that was the first time this had really happened in the industry. So all of a sudden, Deutsche Bank were created and creating brand new products in this market. We weren't taking market share from anyone else. We were creating a new market. We were doing things that hadn't been done before. Acquisitions, sukuk and convertibles and exchangeables and structured product platforms and multi-asset treasury management products and Islamic hedge funds and stuff nobody had dreamed of before. And in a sense, that was exciting and it was fun. But also, in a sense, I think we may have spoiled that market as well because we gave birth to the types of products and structures and methodologies. We unleashed new spirits into the market, and it's not always easy to keep a lid on those spirits. And investment bankers like to do dubious things because they're greedy people and they like to make money. 
And so a lot of the market was spoiled. And by the time the global financial crisis hit, we had to kind of bottle those spirits again. And since then, the, the industry has moved somewhat slowly. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah. So what are the main ways in which modern Islamic finance differs from mainstream fiat finance? I have been struggling for most of the last oh, 27 years as an insider to see if I can change the way Islamic finance is delivered to the end customer so that it accords with the ideals of the Islamic economic model. I think I'm reaching the conclusion that it may not be possible, but I haven't quite reached my final verdict on that. And I have always been trying to create product that met both spirit and letter of the law. So in other words, not only were they compliant with the contractual parameters, the contractual structures of fiqh mu'amalat, which is the jurisprudence of commercial and financial transactions in Islamic law, but also that they met the maqasid al-sharia, the objectives of sharia, the preservation of wealth, for example, a just transaction, an equitable transaction, one that had inherent qualities of fairness and social justice. And I haven't been able to quite marry the two. I've seen many products that follow the letter of the law, but not necessarily follow the spirit of the law. So for me, the verdict is still out on whether Islamic finance has managed to achieve those objectives. But certainly every now and then I will come across a product that I think is making an attempt to marry the two. Some types of home financing product, for example, that attempt to do a real risk sharing between the, the financier and, and the one who is financed. I think Islamic finance still has a way to go. I think that as long as it tries to exist within a fiat banking environment, it will always struggle. It's like trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. I remember an Islamic banker trying to describe it as playing water polo wearing American football gear, right? <laughs> you're always on the back foot, you're always struggling, you're always struggling against this. And it's been very, very tough to create product that met both spirit and letter of the law whilst working in the fractional reserve banking system, because it's antithetical to the Islamic economic model. It doesn't make any sense. You can't create money out of money in the Islamic economic model. And yet that's what happens in the fiat system. So, you know, the two are, are never really going to be compatible bedfellows. 
Yeah, no, I think I agree. And I think it's a great metaphor on the football gear. But I think also another way of thinking of it is that the prize in getting into fiat banking, uh, and now that I'm writing the fiat standard, this is becoming clearer and clearer for me because I've tried to study fiat in the same way that I studied Bitcoin, just trying to figure out from first principles how this machine works. I think the central conclusion of the book and the central um, motivating question of the book that shapes the entire analysis is that the equivalent of mining in fiat, you know, in Bitcoin, we have mining and gold, we have mining, it's very straightforward, people dig a hole, and they come up with gold, and then they can sell it. In Bitcoin, mining is a little bit complicated, admittedly, still extremely straightforward compared to fiat, people do a bunch of math problems, and then they get rewarded with magic internet coins, very straightforward. But in fiat, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's incredible because actually the way that you mine fiat, it's not that there's a printer that is actually going out there and printing all the dollars that are happening. They're printing some of the dollars, but it's around 10% or so of the money supply is actually physical and the percentage may vary from country to another, but it's around that range. The majority of money creation actually takes place through credit creation. So anytime a bank is issuing a loan, new money is being created. So new money is coming into the supply. The money supply increases every time a financial institution that is backed by a central bank issues a loan liability denominated in the currency of that central bank. That's how the fiat algorithm works. And so really the prize of getting into fiat, the grand prize for being a fiat banker is not the money you make from your customers as revenue. It's the money you make by mining new fiat, essentially, it's by printing new fiat. In my mind, this is, I think, the insurmountable obstacle that Islamic finance faces in fiat banking, which is that let's do all of the things except the thing that makes money. You know, let's do all the aspects of the business model except the one that is actually generating the profit. And this is why it's extremely difficult to see it. And in, and in fact, you know, I know a lot of people say that uh, a lot of the Islamic finance models end up, as you said, maybe fitting within the letter of these. Islamic law, but clearly in contradiction of, or arguably, some would say, in contradiction of the um, spirit of the law. And I think a lot of Islamic finance can be characterized as being like that, because ultimately, if you're having to deal uh, with fiat money, this is not something that gets discussed by Islamic scholars. They talk about whether Bitcoin is halal or haram a lot, but they rarely ever mention whether fiat money is halal or haram. And I think there are very good political reasons for them not to do that. They work in countries where governments um, like those printers and they like to use them. And you're not going to work yourself into the good graces of your local leader if you're out there telling the people that the currency that they print is haram. I presume you agree. You would say that if you think about it in terms of fiat money, is it's not just contravention of Islamic law because Islamic law stipulates gold and silver as money. It's also uh, clearly a problem because it's debt as money. It's riba as money. It's interest-bearing debt as money, wouldn't you say? Absolutely right. I, I find it incredible that Sharia scholars, some Sharia scholars, have made it impermissible to trade, hold, use Bitcoin because they argue that it doesn't have any set rules, you know, it doesn't have any asset backing, it's not based on any underlying contract, it's used for money laundering, for financing terrorism. I mean, they've just described fiat perfectly, right? But they obviously cannot say that fiat is impermissible because uh, in some cases they're employed by the governments. So I find it bizarre that they have said these things and, and often they've displayed an incredible incoherence on the subject of the modern global monetary system on the subject of modern financial instruments. 
I think they're doing a big disservice to Muslims generally by making it impermissible because everything that I have looked into regarding Bitcoin suggests to me that it's the most Sharia compliant form of money that's ever been invented. And if we look at the underlying characteristics that a Sharia compliant form of money needs to have, people think that it should be gold or silver. And traditionally it has been. We've had the Islamic dinar, for example, because, you know, gold has those characteristics that we all know. For example, the stock to flow ratio and its durability and so on and so on. And we know also that Bitcoin has many of these characteristics and more, right? So it seems bizarre to me that scholars who say that gold is permissible would tell me that Bitcoin is impermissible. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I think there's a huge ongoing debate, the debate within the Muslim community. Uh, a lot of theologians, I think, have displayed a lot of ignorance of the subject. And I have even made an open plea that they should perhaps look at this subject on a, a more informed technical level and understand from people who understand the technicalities of Bitcoin, what this actually means. I think previously I wrote about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and now I have no interest in cryptocurrency generally. I only have interest in Bitcoin. That's the only one to me that seems to be compatible with Islamic notions of decentralized, non-manipulatable, non-inflationary money. It seems to me, as I say, the closest to the Islamic economic model. Because it's non-manipulable, and uh, what else? What do you find in it that makes it uh, fit in that model? Well, I'm going to say something perhaps a little bit bizarre, actually, which is that when Muslims ask me, why should I look into Bitcoin? I give them the analogy of Quran and Hadith. So Quran is the word of God in the form of a book. And Hadith are the traditions, the collected, recorded traditions of the Prophet either his sayings or his actions. Now, the way in which hadith have been transmitted is via a chain of authority. And each link in that chain is a node, if you like. So every time the prophet did or said something and it was recorded by a trusted companion, somebody who had particular impeccable credentials, that recorded action or saying will be transmitted to another trusted companion and so on down the chain. If there was any weak link in that chain, it would be disregarded. So you can have strong hadith, you can have weak hadith, and you can have fabricated hadith. And this kind of scientific process was there to preserve the recorded actions and saying of the Prophet. The Quran, I think, is an even more interesting analogy for Muslims generally, because there is no centralized version of the Quran. There's no glass box in Makkah that contains the original single version of the Quran from which all others are derived. So, for example, during the, the holy month of Ramadan, when Muslims are fasting, they go into the mosque in the evenings and they, they pray a particular prayer called Tarawih. And in this prayer, typically in any mosque around the country, in any mosque in the world, they will recite the Quran over the course of 30 days, the whole thing. And the Imam, the guy who's leading it, will be reciting the Quran, memorized it word for word, punctuation mark for punctuation mark. And if he makes a single mistake, or if he hesitates and forgets the next bit, there'll be at least one person and possibly several people in the front row in that one mosque amongst millions around the world who will immediately correct him. Because around the world, there are potentially, I don't know, tens of millions, maybe more Muslims who have memorized this orally disseminated tradition, memorized it to every single letter and punctuation mark. And they are the notes. They're effectively a decentralized ledger. And when I explain that the decentralized ledger of Bitcoin is like the decentralized ledger of Quran, of course, it's a shocking thing to say. I mean, I don't mean to say it in a blasphemous way, 
What I'm saying is the methodology is very similar. And now you have a trustless and fully verified system. And the two are, are very, very analogous. And at that moment, they say, oh, I get it now. I totally understand what this technology is behind Bitcoin. Okay, I need to look into this more. That sounds really interesting. So that's the analogy I use to get them interested in an economic system, which is very compatible with their own values. That's a very smart way of putting it, because ultimately the Quran continues to survive and nobody's relied upon as an authority to determine what's right and wrong. It's a very good way of explaining it. But I think in terms of the monetary properties, the way that I see it, I think is similar to you, is that the reason there's nothing haram in Bitcoin is that once you step away from the fact that it's not physical and you just accept the fact that when we've built a digital world, then there will be economic goods that are non-physical. And I think domain names are a great example, www.amazon.com is not a physical thing. You can't kick it, you can't drop it on your toes. Uh, and yet you can't just own amazon.com. It's uh, good luck trying to buy it. It's gonna cost, well, I mean, I can imagine probably uh, Bezos would charge a trillion dollars probably before he sells this domain name. And it's nothing physical. He's not gonna lose a single physical thing from his house or from all of his company, but he could sell the rights to that domain. So I think perhaps with a lot of Muslims, what the sticking point is, is that they conflate the non-physical nature of Bitcoin with the riba of the uh, fiat money. In other words, they get that there's something fishy about uh, dollars and about the fact that central banks create dollars. And so they're receptive to that idea that, yeah, we should be on gold, we should be on silver because it's what the Quran says. And there's clearly something wrong here. Most Muslims will entertain that. But in their mind, Bitcoin comes in the tank of riba because it's unlike gold and silver, it's not physical. And like fiat money, it's just an entry on a database. And so therefore, there must be somebody out there who can control it. But I think you hit on something very profound, which is that the fact that it's not manipulable, nobody can just control the supply, is what takes it from the bucket of fiat and puts it in the bucket of gold, in my opinion, even though it's not physical. And so then the question becomes, well, why are people using it? It's the same reason they use physical things and other non-physical things, which is that it has a value for you. And uh, a lot of people have a value for Bitcoin. And so you can use it as a money because you buy it, other people buy it, and you can sell it on. And then I think the compelling aspect of it is that it's hard. There's no authority anywhere that has ever been able to make Bitcoin at a discount. There's nobody who has a printer that can make Bitcoin at a discount. Nobody who will ever do that. Well, you know, never, ever big words. But the more you study in Bitcoin, the more you realize uh, how difficult it would be for somebody to try and enforce a change on the money supply or, or a way to corrupt it. And, and that, I think, is the key to the appeal. And I think when you start thinking about the implications for a monetary system built on Bitcoin, that's when the connections with Islamic finance begin to really shine. And it's something that I've thought about for quite a while. And then I saw, I hadn't written about it yet, but I am writing a little bit about it in uh, the fiat standard. I think with a hard monetary system, I don't really see how, with something like Bitcoin, where you know Bitcoin has, first of all, it's hard, so nobody can print it. And secondly, it's also highly saleable across space. So you can move it around very easily and very cheaply. You can transfer it halfway around the world for a few dollars and a few hours. And so the more honest the money and the better the money in terms of its saleability across time and across space, the better it's going to be at performing the function of money. And I think Bitcoin finance will naturally end up looking more like Islamic finance not through any kind of religious edict. It's not because uh, Muslims are going to embrace Bitcoin and force it to become Islamic. 
I think the nature of Bitcoin is only going to lend itself to the kind of finance that will emerge, the kind of finance that is compatible with the spirit of Sharia law, I would say, regardless of whether it's compatible with the letter of the law, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's always been strange to me that uh, Muslims will argue that just because it's not physical, it can't be money. I mean, there's nowhere in Islamic jurisprudence that says that money has to be asset-backed or physical or have utility other than as money. There's nowhere that says that. So we can use... Although, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that it specifically specifies gold and silver and then because since it's... Really. Uh... I mean, uh, there are six categories of Rivawi uh, commodities, including gold and silver and wheat and barley and I think dates and I think salt. And these are things that may be used as currency. In other words, we may use other things if we have social concurrence that we may use them as a form of currency. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't okay. necessarily say that they have to have utility as something. There's nowhere that it says that. So when Muslims say that, I question that. I say, where? Show me exactly where in the original theological texts does it actually say you need to have real physical asset backing? It doesn't. Besides, the money in your bank account is just digits in a computer somewhere. You think they actually hold 10 pound notes or 10 pounds worth of gold in their vaults relating to the 10 pounds that you have in your bank account? No. So, I mean, you know, I think this is a fallacy and, and Muslims would do well to research this and, and realize that social concurrence is more important than a real asset backing. Yeah, absolutely. I, one thing struck me in your article, which I think is scary and profound, is just the way that a lot of these fatwas are going on Bitcoin. We could be seeing a replay of the printing press, of people just saying, well, the printing press was haram and that knocked literacy back for centuries in Islamic countries because a lot of people thought that it was haram because you could print bad things on paper. So clearly we should ban printing. And this is very similar to the logic of no coiners today who say, well, you can do bad things with Bitcoin, therefore Bitcoin is bad. But yeah, I think uh, it could be tragic. If the next 10, 20 years as Bitcoin continues to grow, as I think and expect it will be, if uh, the majority of the Muslim world is frozen out because their muftis are telling them that this is haram, they're just going to end up eventually, Bitcoin's not going to go away, I think. And if it continues to impose itself, the only effect of these fatwas will be that uh, Muslims will buy 5, 10, 15, 20 years later than they otherwise would have. Yeah, I read a very interesting thing within the last one, maybe two weeks, who is one of the leading scholars in the Islamic world on the subject of Islamic finance, who has um, historically been very forward thinking on a lot of uh, new products in the Islamic finance space. But he recently indirectly issued a fatwa on this, which I found very disappointing because he essentially quoted the usual very strange things that people, scholars in particular, say about Bitcoin, which is that it's speculative and therefore it's it's not compatible with our values. It's an international underplot was the words that he used, which I, again, I find a little bit bizarre. It's not asset backed, which again, as I've explained, there's nowhere in Sharia that it says it has to be asset backed. The thing that disturbed me most of all was the fact that he said he would revisit this in future this fatwa, his, this legal opinion of his, maybe it could happen in the future. Maybe it could be Sharia compliant in the future. And I'm thinking, yeah, but when? When we're all poor and everybody else is rich and we cannot climb out of that social injustice that we're in now? I mean, why tell me that in 20 years time when Bitcoin has been mined and uh, it's whatever, a million dollars per coin? Don't tell me that in 20 years time. Tell me that now. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I was disappointed by that. I had huge respect for many of these scholars, in particular Mufti Taki Usmani is a hero and mentor of mine. 
But there comes a point at which even my dear father and my dear father-in-law, I love them and respect them a great deal. But at some point I have to take the car keys away from them. And I think that's what's happening right now. I think we need to take away some of that authority from some of these scholars because this is too specialized a subject and it needs individuals who are really well versed in the technicalities of it, who really deeply understand it. I am seeing that happening, by the way. A lot of young scholars coming forward with extremely good credentials. They are very networked in the finance space. They understand modern finance and modern monetary system. They have come out with their own papers, their own research on Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that many of them are beginning to come around to it and saying, actually, hey, there's something here, guys. This really could be a, a monetary system that is very compatible with our faith for the reasons that it's non-inflationary and it's decentralized, it's non-manipulatable, it's divisible, it has social acceptance, et cetera, et cetera. These are all the characteristics of a sound money. So we should really look at it carefully. They haven't dismissed it out of hand, and I'm, I'm very pleased to see that. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think, strangely enough, there were, maybe this is just my impression, but I think a few years ago, there were probably a few more positive rulings on this. But now I think the, the tide is turning toward uh, more negative rulings on this. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, as you said, what they're missing in this picture is that, um, is what I like to call Bitcoin's number go up technology. And I think the way to communicate, the way I try and communicate it to people is that you hear about Facebook or Amazon or Google or Netflix coming up and taking over the world. And you might not be convinced of that. And so you think, well, Facebook, this thing sounds silly or Google sounds silly. And so you don't join. But then, you know, five years later, you decide, all right, well, this thing isn't going away. All my friends are there and all they're all using it and they can't shut up about it. So I guess I'm going to set up myself up an account with this uh, service, whether it's Facebook or Google. Five years later, 10 years later, you start your Facebook, Google, Amazon account. It functions every bit as well as uh, the person who's been there for 10, 15 years. You still get the same search results. Well, you still some get the same algorithms uh, to manipulate your search result and his, and you still get you know the same uh, shows on Netflix. You still get the same uh, goods available on Amazon. There's not much of a change in the consumer experience depending on when you join. But Bitcoin, your experience with Bitcoin is highly, highly <laughs> correlated with your time of joining. I mean, the earlier you join the more satoshis you get and it's very straightforward this is the part that i don't like about uh, <laughs> number go up technology because when you're trying to say this you sound like you're trying to sell people on uh, a ponzi scheme but the reality of it is that there's only 21 million and that's it and you may not like that fact you may think it's not fair but that's how it goes and i think really getting bitcoin putting aside the technical aspects of it but getting the importance of bitcoin for you is in that one moment when you realize, okay, all of my big braining and all of my reasons and all of my ideas, all that they're doing is they're just raising my buy-in price. If I change my mind one day, they're not going to go and say, all right, well, he's changed his mind. Let's start all over again and redistribute the Bitcoin so that everybody has their fair share based on how much money they had earlier. This is the reallocation of wealth that is happening by replacing an entire uh, monetary system with a new one. And this is the new real estate. Think about it as if they're going to shut down the Suez Canal and dig a new Suez Canal. And we know where the real estate for the new Suez Canal is going to be. And it's happening. You can see that the thing is happening. And I think if you have a business that is reliant on the Suez Canal, the sooner you buy up the real estate around the new Suez Canal, the better off you're going to be. 
trying to delay it and waiting and saying, well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're only missing out on it yourself. You're not hurting anyone but yourself. That's the really uh, sad part about it, I think. Absolutely right. Yeah. On the question of interest, I'm of the view that I think in a Bitcoin-only economy, you would not get interest lending. And as I was saying earlier, it would look like an Islamic Sharia-compliant economy because I can't see there would be interest lending. What are your views on this? And what do you think? Yeah, I think I used to think that. And then I've seen some chatter on social media about how to create an interest-bearing banking type system off of the back of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And although, of course, we can't magic money out of thin air if we have a finite decentralized cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, just in the same way we can't magic gold out of thin air, we have to mine it first. The reality is that once we have an economy that's functioning on Bitcoin, there will be some enterprising individual who will come along and work out how to lend that interest against that. I think it makes it much harder because you can't have a fractional reserve banking system if the economic model is only based on Bitcoin and not on fiat. You can't print more of it. You can't take in a dollar of deposit and lend out $10 a deposit because you'd have to create those nine extra dollars right? You'd have to mine those nine extra dollars or nine extra units or Satoshis or whatever of Bitcoin. So I used to think that if we had a Bitcoin only economy, you could never have riba. You could never have interest in the economy. But I think we will find that many organizations will come forward and be able to move away from the idea of a bank as a custodial service only towards a bank as a lender at interest. It will be much, much harder Therefore, you would be able to deleverage the economy in a way that's not possible today. But I think it will happen. I don't think we'll be able to prevent that. So, you know, I think there are many characteristics of Bitcoin that means we will move towards a more socially just economic model. But I don't think we'll be able to completely erase what I think is the curse of interest. I think obviously eliminating it completely is arguably impossible. There will always be people who want to engage in it. But I, I think as a financial system overall, I don't see how it can uh, continue to play a main role. And I think there are a couple of reasons to think about it. On the one hand, you've got the problem of fractional reserve banking and rehypothecation is essentially only workable, only stable with a lender of last resort. I think this is what the 20th century has shown us. Basically, the reason that uh, the gold standard continued to have crises all the time was because banks would engage in fractional reserve banking and then discover, oh no, we don't have a gold printer, so we can't meet all of our gold obligations. And effectively going off the gold standard was done in order to help banks avoid the reckoning of the fractional reserve banking. So when banks would engage in credit expansion, and the credit expansion would increase across the US economy, it would always lead to corrections. And when there was no central bank, those corrections were generally smaller because if there was no central bank to print the money, you get found out and then your bank is out of business. And then your employees and capital gets redistributed to other banks who are more prudent until they stop being prudent and then <laughs> they get wiped out. So it wasn't perfect, but it had that control mechanism of eventually there could be a bank run. And so the only way that this was prevented and the only way that they were able to prevent this from bringing down banks repeatedly was to set up central banks. And so the role of the central bank would be that it would hold the gold and it would allow people to use papers. And so then when there's a liquidity shortage, it's easier for the central bank to create money 
in order to solve that liquidity shortage when the money is paper. And so I'm summarizing, of course, a lot, but basically the transformation of the monetary system in the 20th century was one where we created the lender of last resort to rescue banks in order to allow them to engage in fractional reserve banking. And as a result, that ended up opening the floodgates of inflation, because if you can devalue the currency for rescuing banks, then you can also devalue it for war, and you can devalue it for all kinds of election slogans that become popular. And then basically people start voting essentially for Christmas wish lists of anything because the government has a printer. So all of it ultimately comes down to the fact that there is a lender of last resort. You remove the lender of last resort, and then you have financial institutions that have a very strict limit on how much liabilities they can issue because if they issue liabilities more than the assets they hold, they can be subject to a bank run. And I think in a Bitcoin economy, this is much more likely to happen than a gold economy because there are significant costs to moving gold around. There are very strong monopolies for gold clearance that were tied into government back in the 19th century. So you, it wasn't very easy for somebody to just go and set up a gold bank. And it's not easy to set it up just for logistical reasons. So the gold business lends itself, or, or gold's spatial saleability limitations, the high cost of moving gold around, lends itself for giving the banker an edge and an advantage over their client. Because, all right, you can go to the bank and withdraw your gold if you think they're engaging in fraud, but then what are you going to do with your gold? Your gold without the bank rails is pretty useless. You can only use it to buy things from the store next door. And as the world economy became more and more sophisticated, you needed to buy things from more people and your business had to import and export things. And so your gold coin without the bank's rails is pretty useless. And this is where I think Bitcoin really makes a difference because Bitcoin's spatial saleability is much higher than gold. The cost of organizing a bank run essentially or the, on your bank is much lower. It's just one transaction fee to demand that the bank pays you out. You don't have to stand in line and you don't have to wait until opening hours and they can't play the same tricks that banks usually play, which is make people wait and delay them and stall them and in order to hope that they go away before they run out of money. So it makes things more transparent. And of course, because the blockchain is publicly available and transparent, you can keep good tabs on your financial institution's holdings. And you know, obviously there's still room for fraud always, but with traceability of funds available on the blockchain, you can keep very good eye on what they're doing. And I think with time, I see a convincing reason for why gold banks could get away with inflation and printing 10% more paper than they have or 20%. I can see how they can get away with it because if you think about it as in the value that they provide to their customers is so large that the customers having gold on the banking platform essentially has a 10, 20% premium over having gold in your pocket because you can send the gold in their platform much faster. So people are essentially willing to put up, even if they're not consciously willing to put up, just the economics of it end up making sense that even when the bank is messing around, it still makes economic sense for you to keep your money there and take on the risk because that's how you can continue to operate your business. Otherwise, you go out of business. So I can see the case for why you can get these margins and banks can have the ability to mess around when they're limited with a money that has saleability across space like that of gold. But I can't see that happening in Bitcoin. In fact, I think if you do end up doing something like this, you engage in fractional reserve banking, if you engage in interest rate lending, effectively what you're doing is you're creating liabilities on yourself for Bitcoins that you don't have. 
And your liabilities in a Bitcoin economy will trade on the market and will be exchangeable to Bitcoin. And so if you're a financial institution and you issue, say, accounts backed by Bitcoin and you give them to people so that they can use these accounts, there's going to develop a premium or, or there will be a discount on your Bitcoin if you increase the supply of your Bitcoin. And, and people don't even need to know that you are engaging in fractional reserve banking. These things will emerge very quickly on the market just because if you're printing more of these, then there will be more people selling them for real Bitcoin and then there will be differential in the price. And that premium reflects the fact that your Bitcoin liabilities or your Bitcoin IOUs are not as scarce as the Bitcoin backing them. There is a little bit of a discrepancy between your, the number of IOUs that you have and the number of uh, coins that you have. And so in that case, I think if it does emerge, it'll be at a far smaller scale and I don't see it being sustainable. This is one argument I have. I'm curious as to what I you think. I think we'll see alternative mechanisms arising because, I mean, I think hopefully we agree that credit is a socially useful function. I mean, there is a need for credit in society. And we probably also agree that if there is a Bitcoin standard and if the global monetary system works on this basis, then we are likely to see an overall deleveraging and a removal of interest in many cases from society. That said, I think there are a number of financing mechanisms that are good risk-sharing mechanisms, real economy financing mechanisms that we're trying to employ in the Islamic finance industry today. And to a degree, some of them are synthetic versions of what's already ver available in the fiat banking systems, and therefore maybe not as pure as they should be in relation to the Islamic economic model. But others are a bit more risk-sharing. And I think we'll see the emergence of those mechanisms, profit and loss-sharing mechanisms, in the same manner as we once saw merchant capitalism in the early days of Islam. So the Prophet himself, for example, was a mudarib, a manager of other people's money. He was a merchant who took that capital and, and traded it with goods and services. And that return to a purer form of profit and loss sharing is a form of credit mechanism that I think is a useful one and, and, and socially useful to society. I agree. And this was the second point that I was going to make, which is that when you think that there's no lender of last resort who can print Bitcoin and there's no monetary authority that can force you to accept its liabilities as being equivalent on face value to Bitcoin, well, then I think the model for financing is going to switch more toward an equity model rather than a credit model. And I think it's for the reasons that you mentioned. And it's because the risk sharing is unfair in the case of riba. Think of it this way. If there's no central bank that can print money, then your bank offering you, say, a promise of a return of 5% at the end of the year, it's not a promise. They can't keep that promise. They don't have an FDIC that can uh, come and print them dollars in order to match all their liabilities as long as they're abiding by the law. And so risk is always present in human uh, affairs, and there's always going to be real risk, and there's always going to be risk of complete wipeout. You can get completely wiped out. So it's not just that they can't guarantee you the 5% return, they can't guarantee you the 100% principle that you put in, that you could get wiped out entirely. The company could get wiped out in a storm or an earthquake or a pandemic or whatever, and the company goes out of business, the bank can't get your principal back and they can't pay you the interest. So where are they gonna get the $105 to pay you back at the end of the year for the 100 that you gave them? If we move toward an economy with no central bank, people will eventually learn that lesson, whether they learn it the easy way or the hard way. They'll eventually find out that when you're taking a loan for 5%, you're basically a sucker in, in that economy because you're taking on 100% of the risk because if there is a wipeout of the company, 
you are going to get wiped out and the bank is going to get wiped out. So you're taking on 100% of the risk. You're taking on 100% of the downside and you're getting a very limited upside. No matter how well the company does, you can only get 5%. And I don't see the value from that. I can see that people would stick to a fixed return as long as it was guaranteed. So your saving account is guaranteed by the FDIC. And therefore, it makes sense for you to put money from an economic perspective, even if you might not agree with it from a Sharia perspective, it makes sense to have your money in a saving account that pays an interest rate that is higher than inflation, or at least higher than uh, holding cash under your mattress, which is going to be destroyed by inflation over time. At least if you get some interest on a saving account, you'll slow down the decay of value. But in a system when there's no FDIC, because there's no magic Fed printer to make more money, then taking on a fixed interest loan just means that you're limiting your upside while taking on all the downside. And I don't see how that business model survives very long. Yeah, so now imagine that you're in a fully equity financing economy where capital is directed to those projects which have the most real economy impact. Now you're not financing zombie companies, which is what's happening today, right? This is a really key point. And I think that this shift towards an equity financing economy is entirely compatible with the risk-sharing economic model of Islamic finance. I think there's also some kind of philosophical background to this as well. And again, I find it interesting the, the parallels between Islamic philosophy and Bitcoin philosophy. Things like low time preference, delayed gratification. These are actually, in a sense, part of the core values of the best people considered in Islamic thought. The best people have sabr, they have patience, they are forbearing, they are steadfast. And that implies an individual who is patient, who is self-disciplined. I mean, it's a bit like fasting, isn't it? When you fast, you are disciplining your body, you're disciplining your mind, you're inculcating values of delayed gratification. You are against consumerism. I think consumerism is incentivized by inflationary money creation. And we'd be moving away from that. So actually, philosophically, this risk-sharing equity-based economy under a Bitcoin standard is very close to Islamic thought and also social justice, the reduction in wealth inequality, the reduction in conflict between people. You talk a lot about this in your book, about how we've had stable periods of history where there's been a gold standard, where there's been technological and scientific and artistic advancement when there has been a gold standard. And again, that's very compatible with Islamic thought. When you have a a stable, sound currency, you have periods of development of human civilization because we are more predisposed towards delayed gratification. I think that is entirely compatible between Islam and and, and Bitcoin. Absolutely. I, I saw a piece a couple of weeks ago about somebody writing about fasting and Bitcoin and fasting and hodling and how the two essentially draw on, on the same muscle inside you, which is your willpower, your ability to actualize what you want and your ability to do what you want rather than what temptation wants you to do. I definitely see that. And I think my own thinking on time preference is heavily influenced by a lot of these things that I've learned about the Islamic version of living the good life, for sure. One other point that I'd like to add on terms of the way in which I see finance, the business 
model in fiat is to print money by lending it. You see why there's an enormous incentive for everybody to borrow for everything, for your car, for your business, for your house, your municipality and your local government and your national government and every single multinational corporation, everybody's in debt. There's nobody who's not in debt. I mean, not nobody, but basically the richer you are, the more debt you take on. The, the world's richest people are also the world's biggest borrowers because they take on a lot of financing. In fiat, this is a freak of nature that is a result of the fact that we've run a monetary system where the money is depreciating and the money is printed by borrowing. And so the optimal strategy in the fiat world is to try and make your balance of the fiat token itself as negative as possible. And the trick to do that is to hold a lot of hard assets so you can borrow against them so that you can continue to borrow more fiat. Like you win in fiat if you owe a lot of fiat and if you hold a lot of hard assets. This really became clear to me thanks to Michael Saylor and uh, the, the few interviews we've had in this podcast, which I highly recommend everybody listen to. It's absolutely mind-blowing the way he explains it. And it dovetails perfectly with the way that I think about fiat. It's just borrowing is essentially a tax on the rest of society and a subsidy to you. And so if you're not borrowing, if you're a Muslim living in a fiat-based society and you refuse to take part of borrowing, you're effectively subsidizing everybody else. You're losing. You're a loser. Yeah. Yeah, you're paying to subsidize everybody else. And that's why, in a sense, you can be a little finicky about, oh, well, the Islamic finance is, is not exactly real Islamic finance, but you can also, the technological reality of the money that is available for people today, if you wanted to use a bank, if you wanted to transfer money from your country to your, another country, the reality is you have to play with this stupid broken casino system. And um, it, it's almost like the only way you live in a town where the only way that you can eat is that at the end of the day, you take your wages and you have to take them to the casino and spend an hour gambling. You, you may come out with money after uh, you go to the casino. You may win, you may lose. But if you don't go to the casino, you don't get to eat almost. Or you, you get to just give your money or most of your money to people who are going to go gamble with it anyway. And you're not going to gamble with it. So it's, it's a really tough pickle. It's amazing how Bitcoin fixes this because it fixes it in a very technological way, not in a uh, religious way, which is that it stops the monetization of debt. And so I think the potential for Muslims to like Bitcoin, if they just get this point, which is that it's how we get rid of riba. If it's how we unwind riba. If you do that, I don't see that there would be such a strong incentive for people to borrow. Like I think if you want exposure to somebody else, if, if you want to earn money, it's just going to make more sense for you and for them with a hard money, proper monetary system. It's going to make more sense for you and them to uh, get into an equity deal. And so you both share the upside and you both share the downside. And I think the reason that people don't see this right now, the reason everybody is a borrower and a lender, everybody lends money and borrows money, is that there's an enormous incentive for being a borrower and a lender in this fiat system. But I think an honest money takes that away. Yeah, 100% agree. And, and also worth adding, I think that, again, in the Islamic uh, philosophy, to die with a debt on your shoulders that has not been repaid is a sin. It, it needs to be repaid. And yet we live in a world in which we are encouraged to take on debt and to own hard assets. The direct consequence of that is wealth inequality. If you are able to borrow, if you are able to hold these hard assets, which are then inflated, 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 you get richer. But those at the bottom of the pyramid have no chance. Absolutely. When Michael Saylor was explaining it, he was saying the goal is to die with as much debt as you possibly can get. And that's really the way to win in the fiat system. And the way he explains it is, you know, if you have a hard asset, you borrow against it 
And because it's constantly getting inflated, if the asset is appreciating more than the inflation is eating up in its value, then you basically never have to pay off the loan because you, you can borrow increasing quantities and the value of your loan is constantly devaluing. And so basically you can just live off of rolling over your debt, spending the money and paying off ever smaller fractions of the loan that you took on in real terms. And so as time goes by, you just continue to amass more negative fiat points, basically. With every monetary system, people try and get as many tokens of the monetary system as they can, except with fiat. With fiat, you want to have as much debt as you can. So when you think about it, people who follow the sales strategy end up increasing their wealth massively, end up dying with a lot of hard assets and a lot of debt. And ultimately, they are being subsidized by the rest of society. And... The people who subsidize them the most are the people who don't borrow at all. And that's, in many cases, the Muslims. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Uh, Zahir, you had a question? Yes. I think Yusuf has already discussed part of what I was about to ask. It's related to the misconceptions that the Muslims have about how the financial system is working. Like people do not understand that the concept of interest or riba is haram does not apply fully under a fiat system because like if the money is inflatable then basically you are losing money and if you stay on that system and try to fix it or try to do an islamic financial um, regulation like i don't know islamic finance i don't really understand how you can generate any sort of benefit for someone participating in that economy if the base layer is a fiat uh, money. So maybe it could be better just to tell people that if you stay on that system, you are not complying to the Sharia law that you think you are complying to, you are not doing yourself any benefit. And then the next thing is that they will suggest you a harder asset like gold or silver. And then you tell them exactly that this is bad because it was at some point the case that we are on a gold standard and the state managed to confiscate it out of our banks. And then, yeah, the next solution is something like the Bitcoin standard. And this kind of uh, stands in the face of the sheikhs who try to say that Bitcoin is speculative or not halal or something. So why not tell them, yeah, but fiat is not halal and you are not saying anything. Like fiat is not halal and interest on fiat is not halal and the reproduction or the production of new fiat uh, tokens is not halal. But yeah. Interestingly, I have never heard a sheikh in any Islamic countries, especially in Arab countries, who just says that the dealing with fiat currency is haram. So thank you. I know it is not a question, it's just uh, my opinion, but I would like uh, to hear what Harris and Seif think about that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Zahir. Very good points there. I think there's two fundamental questions. The first is that I think Muslims in general have struggled to understand the value proposition that is Islamic finance versus conventional traditional finance. And the second is they have struggled to understand an even more fundamental question, which is what is the nature of money? And therefore, what is the difference between fiat money and hard money like Bitcoin? So I think the fact that they've been unable to answer the first question for themselves is partly a function of the kind of institutions that they've been served by. And certainly when I look in my own home country of the UK and I look at the leadership of UK Islamic banks. Honestly, it's extremely disappointing. These are mainly individuals, not mainly, these are 100% individuals who do not represent, who do not look like, act like, have the same values as, as the people that they serve. 
So it's no wonder that Muslims have not got comfortable with Islamic banking as a service to them. It's no wonder that in the UK that penetration rate is only 2% of Muslim households have an account with an Islamic retail bank. It is because they don't identify with the people who are serving them. They can't understand the value proposition. And the people who are running these organizations are unable to articulate that value proposition in accordance with the Islamic economic model. So that's been a failure. And the second even more fundamental question is, what is the nature of money? There's no way an Islamic banker can answer that question. They simply haven't thought about it. They're so used to operating in the fractional reserve banking system that as far as they're concerned, Islamic banking is merely a synthetic replication of the conventional financial system. It's impossible for them to get their heads around anything else. So I think Muslims have been very badly served by the financial services industry. I'm seeing some very interesting developments taking place right now in fintech specifically. I hope some of them come to fruition because I think they're closer to a just economic model. And hopefully some of them will flourish even more under a Bitcoin standard. Nasser, go ahead. Hi, everyone. I'm from Libya and I go on long debates about Bitcoin with people recently in Clubhouse. There is a view that every type of money that should be considered Islamic has to be exchanged hand in hand. Do you know anything about this? Like, where does this come from? There's a very simple answer to that, uh, Nasser. It's a very famous hadith in which the Prophet says that there are six categories of commodity that, that must be exchanged hand to hand. Gold, silver, wheat, dates, and a couple of others. I think it was barley and salt, if I'm not mistaken. And the reason why he said this is because he disallowed the trading of one of these for a greater amount in return. In other words, if I give you 100 grams of gold, you must give me 100 grams of gold back. That's what's meant by hand to hand. It doesn't literally mean physically we have to pass a bag of gold between each other. What it means is that I cannot ask for more in return, which is riba, literally an excess or a surplus. That is interest. That's what that hadith means. So when people say, oh, Bitcoin is not physical, I can't pass a Bitcoin to you. That's not at all the intent of that hadith. It's, it's nothing related to it. This refers back to what I was saying earlier, which is that uh, people conflate the non-physicality of Bitcoin with the non-physicality of fiat and then assume that it must be riba because it's not uh, hand-to-hand. But uh, you can make Bitcoin physical. You can make open dimes and you can make uh, paper wallets and you can make hardware wallets and you can trade these things hand-to-hand. And I think really... Perhaps just getting people to understand that, yeah, you could have the Bitcoin on the open dime and then you can put the money on the open dime and then you can give it to somebody else and that's it and they've taken it. I think this might be a good way of just getting the point across to people that you're not dealing with uh, fiat financial institutions, databases where uh, money is just essentially an opinion (laughs) of the people in charge. You're dealing with a hard asset and it's only digital because that's the most effective way of uh, making an asset hard that we've found. All right, uh, Daniel, you have a question? Yes, I do. Harris, thank you. This has been truly interesting and and safe as always. Whilst I was listening to this, it just kind of, I've been reading a a book. It's called Thank God for Bitcoin. And it's written by eight people, two of which, Robert Breedlove and, and Jimmy Song, huge Bitcoiners. I didn't think this would be the kind of book that I'd enjoy, but they go through it. The way it's set out is they take quotes from the Bible and then put that into a relevant day and um, spin it into, you know, Bitcoin. So, I mean, I've not read your book, Harris. Um, I'm going to have to get that one and and dig into that. But uh, I'm not sure, just having a quick look around on Amazon, whether you talked about Bitcoin in that book. So I guess my question to you is, 
are you going to step up and write the equivalent book for those people that are, <laughs> you might be able to orange pill the whole Muslim community and use the Quran to, to guide you? It's funny. Alhamdulillah for Bitcoin, Harris. Somebody has to write it. Alhamdulillah for Bitcoin. Do it. <laughs> I have actually been thinking about that. I've been thinking about my journey into this. It's almost like a religious journey. And I say that in the most respectful way because I'm myself a pretty conservative Muslim. I'm orthodox in my views and I take my faith very seriously. And, you know, Bitcoin is a little bit like being a Muslim. Being a Bitcoiner is a bit like being a Muslim because when you're on the inside, Everything makes sense. It's logical. You think about things carefully. You've analyzed it carefully and you say, this makes total sense, right? From the outside, people think you're insane, right? So if you're a non-Muslim, I mean, I know many non-Muslims will see me and saying, I thought you were reasonably intelligent. I mean, you believe in uh, an unseen God. You believe in heaven and hell. You have these ideas that, that don't make any rational sense. They're not proven by science. And I say, I understand why you're coming from that point of view. I personally see, you know, no incompatibility between science and my faith at all. That's the reason why I studied physics at university to, to understand my faith even more deeply. And if anything, it reinforced my faith. So on the inside, I am told that as a Muslim, and this is what the Quran teaches me, is that uh, Islam is a religion for those who think. That's a very, very important injunction for those who think. On the inside, I see Islam as a deeply logical religion, one that's governed by social justice. And I think Bitcoin is a very similar, actually, because on the inside, they see a huge amount of social justice and logic on the inside. And yet from the outside, people are saying, oh, you're gambling. This is speculative. This doesn't make any sense. It's not real. It's not backed by anything. It's like a big plot. It's a Ponzi scheme, et cetera, et cetera. And we know being Bitcoiners that that's just nonsense. Whenever we read a newspaper journalist talking about the climate effect or the energy usage of Bitcoin, it's just garbage. It's based on uh, some vague understanding of a very tiny uh, subsection, sub subject within the subject of Bitcoin, and they've conflated it to mean something else. So actually, philosophically, I see many similarities between the Bitcoin community and faith-based communities. And I think that my journey within Bitcoin has been something quite interesting, almost a religious experience. So I was delivering a lecture about, I guess, four years ago, where a member of the audience, my, was my usual lecture, I usually give it a provocative title, like capitalism is broken or the banking system must die or something like that. And somebody in the audience asked me a question, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I said, I don't really know anything about Bitcoin. Maybe you can describe it to me. And this guy said, well, you know, it has characteristics like gold because it's, you know, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And uh, it's better than gold because, you know, it's got these other characteristics as well. And I sat back for a second. I said, oh, wow. I mean, Oof, that, that's something amazing. I, I'm going to have to go away and research this, but what you've just described to me is almost the perfect Sharia-compliant form of money and therefore entirely compatible with the purest form of Islamic economic model, which is based on social justice. So that's kind of almost a religious moment for me. And from that point onwards, I've kind of, and I'm no ex expert on the subject of Bitcoin, I mean, my subject is Islamic finance, but I'm seeing so much compatibility with the pure form of the Islamic economic model, which, by the way, is based on universal ideas of social justice, which are equivalent across many great religions. So I think Bitcoin is a very unifying phenomenon, a concept that can bring many different people from many different cultures and faiths together. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'm tempted to write more about that. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea. And I think 
in the Bitcoin standard and in the fiat standard, discuss how fiat is basically built to, to optimize for conflict. It relies on conflict and authority and power in order to function, because ultimately you have to rely on the word of somebody about how the ledger works. And then that requires somebody to impose their will. And then there's going to be fights about that. Both domestic politics, everybody wants to be in charge of the money printer. And that makes politics a much higher stakes game. And then internationally, everybody wants to be in charge of the global reserve currency. And that makes international politics such a high stakes game. And it's just naturally going to pit people against each other, people in the same country as well as people across the world. It's because it is a negative sum game. It's a negative sum game. And so everybody's trying to protect themselves in order to get ahead from the destruction of capital and the destruction of wealth that is happening. And so you see it in societies that witness hyperinflation. People walking in the street just want to get into fights with one another. Everybody is angry at everybody else. Everybody's just felt robbed. And when you feel robbed, you feel wrong then you want to take it out and you want to you want to take revenge and you want restitution and when your money is collapsed there's no thief there for you to shoot or punch and particularly if you haven't uh, studied inflation you haven't studied money quite well and you're not very familiar with austrian economics you're not quite sure how this thing happened and you just need a scapegoat and in moments like this you're going to find your scapegoat. And of course, in many cases, you're going to find it much easier to scapegoat people who are different from you. And so ethnic minorities get uh, scapegoated in these episodes always, particularly if the ethnic minority happens to do better because of their connections to some industry or because they can uh, trade abroad or they have expats or whatever. So it's a way of really putting people at each other's throat. It's a way of preventing the natural order of society from functioning because in the natural order, everybody can work, save, accumulate capital and savings that grow in value over time. And therefore, you don't need to start a fight with everybody. You can have what you want. You can live the life that you want if you just work hard and save for yourself. But when that's taken away, you're constantly being robbed and therefore you're constantly in conflict with the people around you. And I think it's astonishing. You know, people, of course, uh, no coiners and fiat idiots like to say all kinds of nasty things about uh, Bitcoiners and Bitcoiners are closed minded and Bitcoiners, it's a closed minded cult. And yet for a cult of closed minded people, it's a remarkably, remarkably diverse group of people from all over the world. It's absolutely astonishing. I think there's absolutely nothing like it. Perhaps maybe football is the only thing that's more universal than Bitcoin so far. But I think eventually Bitcoin will likely overtake football in this. But people all over the world, just on Twitter, you'll see Bitcoiners are from every walk of life and from every culture, every race, every religion. It makes sense to people from all over the world. And it makes sense for them. Once you see it, you see the value of cooperating with others and you enter into this world where you can think constructively of the future. You lower your time preference. And I think that, that there's an enormous potential for Bitcoin in the future in terms of reducing the extent of global conflict, both as wars, as well as just hostility and aggressiveness and hatred between the people all over the world. Peter, you have a question? Yeah, this kind of shifts the topic a little bit, but I'm really keen to get Harris's view on this while we've got him on, on the podcast. It relates to something that you referred to in your book, Harris, about the role that you played in Dubai's International Financial Center from the year 2000 when you moved there in Deutsche Bank that you referred to at the beginning of this conversation. One of the things you said in your book was that the way in which Dubai's financial center was designed drew a lot of inspiration from Hong Kong and Singapore. And I wondered if you could just share what it is that those legal systems have in common. Because one of the things we're quite interested in 
you know, on this podcast and I have a personal interest in is different models of governance and how we might be able to move towards freer models that encourage financial innovation and encourage better protections of private property rights in the future. I guess this is not so much from an Islamic perspective, but more from a sort of looking at the common legal structure that these different cultural entities have had and kind of what you think it is that's made them successful if you do indeed think that this is a model that other places should advocate. Yeah, thanks, Peter. The main uh, drivers for DIFC, the Dubai International Financial Center, commercially to model themselves on centers like Hong Kong and Singapore were the usual reasons why offshore financial centers exist, which is to collect a lot of assets under management in one small place, attract them because you can attract talent, which has access to you know, modern facilities and entertainment and amenities and schools and hospitals and so on. So make it attractive from the point of view of expat specialists to come, make it attractive from the point of view of tax, make it attractive from the point of view of robustness of the legal system. So for example, in the DIFC, the DIFC courts exist and very closely based on English law. English law, by the way, is the most prevalent jurisdiction, governing jurisdiction for Islamic financial contracts. There is a lot of compatibility between English law and Sharia, believe it or not. And therefore, it's, it's perhaps the most suitable for Islamic finance contracts to be structured. And that's entirely helpful to DIFC being a center for Islamic finance as well as conventional finance. So this adoption of DIFC courts, the attraction for expats, the amenities, the low tax environment, the robustness, the geographical hub that Dubai represents as a trading port for many neighboring countries. That makes it very attractive as well, all this throughput of traffic. Emirates Airline, for example, is also an airline with a, a very much a, a hub model. And in all of these factors meant that Dubai was an entirely natural choice to become a center for the Islamic finance world as well as for international finance generally. And I think that's why it modeled itself on Hong Kong, Singapore and elsewhere. Okay, thank you. And just, I, I guess, so you mentioned the English common law being something that those systems have in common. Are there any other factors that you think have been particularly important in that other countries can, for example, copy? So we could copy the English common law system, we can maybe copy the lower taxes model. Is there anything else that you would highlight that makes these financial centers successful? I mean, I can talk from the specific viewpoint of Islamic finance. I think I'm better qualified to comment on that. And if I wanted to set up an investment banking structuring team or an asset manager in a particular financial center that specifically dealt with Sharia compliant products, then I'd want to make sure that I was near to not only a client base, a customer base who bought the product, but also ancillary service providers who could help me structure it, sell it, audit it, write legal contracts and so on. So I need to be near international law firms with that capability. I'd need to be near accounting and consulting firms with that capability. I'd need to be near all sorts of different types of talent and ancillary services who could help my industry become successful. For Islamic finance, that's quite a niche area. And you do need to have some very high quality lawyers, for example. You need to attract that kind of person. Dubai was unique in a sense because for many, many years, for a few decades, in fact, already had a culture of transient population from the Indian subcontinent, for example. So, um, you know, it was not a huge stretch to have, for example, British Muslims of Pakistani and Indian heritage coming to DIFC 
to become specialists in Islamic finance. Culturally, they were very comfortable. They had access to aspects of their Western upbringing as well as their Eastern upbringing all in one place. And that's why I think Dubai was very successful in that respect. Thank you. That's great. Cheers. Okay, uh, Felipe, you have a question. Hi, Harris. Thank you. The conversation will be really enlightening. The question is, do any of the rules on Islamic finance differ depending on the denomination of Islam, or is it uh, pretty consistent across the board? Yeah, that's a good question. There's often, I think, a misconception in the popular financial press that there are many different rulings on Islamic finance, depending on which scholar you go to. Actually, the reality is very different. In the vast majority of cases, most types of financial product have universal agreement amongst scholars from different regions, of different schools of thought, and of different attitudes. There are only minor differences at the periphery. So there are some products which some scholars will say that's okay, others will say that's okay providing the following caveats apply, and some scholars will say that's not okay at all. There are very, very few of those disputes in the Islamic finance space. I think that has been an area that has been exaggerated by the non-specialist press and by some individuals in the industry who don't really understand the technicalities of the products and how they're structured. And surprise, surprise, many of them are in leadership positions. So I think we have this false narrative in the industry that there are many different interpretations. Yes, Sharia is a very organic body of law. It's not dogmatic at all. It's actually evolving and it's been codified over a period of time, which is why you've seen the development of four Sunni schools and one Shia school. And each of these will have a slightly marginally different interpretation of different types of contractual and commercial structures. But really on the big picture, they all tend to agree. And I think that the differences have been, as I say, exaggerated. Would you say the Ottoman Empire had a massive disadvantage in World War I because they could not use reserve banking system to leverage the whole country's output into the war effort? I'm going to pass as somebody who really doesn't have enough knowledge to answer that question. But I will say one general observation, and that is that the reason why the 20th century has been the most bloody century in history is because governments have been able to exhaust the wealth of their citizens in mechanizing warfare. And they've been able to do that by printing. And prior to 1914, if the world lived on a gold standard, the governments would have to exhaust their own treasury chests in order to fight a war. Now they're able to exhaust the wealth of all of their citizens. And it's no wonder that we kill people on a mass scale now. So that's the only comment I will make in relation to that and, and say if I defer to you on the Ottoman question. Yeah, I'm going to actually, the answer just occurred to me right now. This is, I think, a, a very profound point that I came across while writing Bitcoin Standard, which is people think that you win wars by inflating the money supply. And they bring up World War One as an example, but I think it's a great counterexample to that because the countries that lost the war were the ones that inflated their currencies the most. And the countries that won the war were the ones who inflated the least. And specifically, that's the US in particular. The US was on the gold standard up until 1917 or 1918, I think. So it was the last country to go off the gold standard. Well, there was still Sweden and Switzerland that were to remain until the 1930s, I think. From the countries that took part in the war, the US was the last 
last to go off the gold standard. And it was the first to go back to the gold standard. The US reinstated the gold standard in 1921 or 22. I, I discussed this in the fiat standard. The reason that they won the war, there are many factors that why they won the war, but I think the monetary explanation, it helps us understand why the war went on for longer, but I don't think it alters the calculation of who would have won the war because they all engaged in inflation up to some extent or engaged in taxation. And ultimately what won the war was the monetary discipline that allowed the economy to remain strong in the US. And in fact, not only did it win the US the war, in fact, it won the US the global leadership of the financial system after World War I because everybody who had money in Europe started sending their money to the US at the start of the war because the US was still on the gold standard. And so that, perhaps more than anything was the effect of it. So staying on the gold standard was what made the US stronger. It was what attracted an enormous amount of gold from Europe to the US because the US was a safer place to have it. And that allowed the US to be the kingmaker of the world after World War One. On the other hand, Germany and Austria, they were experiencing inflation quite quickly during the war. And if you look at the and I have this chart in the Bitcoin standard, you look at the exchange rates of the main currencies against the Swiss franc, because the Swiss franc was neutral, you'll see that the biggest inflationary pressure had happened to Austria and Germany. They were the ones whose currencies were getting destroyed, whereas the US and Britain had the least destruction. Now, I'm not sure, to be fair, I'm not sure how much that has to do with inflationary monetary policy and how much it has to do with simply Austria and Germany's proximity to Switzerland. I mentioned this in the Bitcoin standard in the footnote, and I haven't heard anybody discuss it, but I think it might really be that World War I may have been settled by the fact that Germans and Austrians could dump their national shitcoin quite easily for Swiss francs, whereas Americans and Brits were stuck with their national shit coins and that protected the value of these coins further. Ultimately, however, I think it's very short-sighted to think that inflation will win you a war. Inflation will destroy your currency and destroy your economy. And if it'll win you a war, it'll win you a war against the arguably a country that is more inflationary than you. If you look at countries that have succeeded and profited and become very powerful, they did so by holding on to hard money. And England rose to become the world's superpower because it had the hardest money and the best money that everybody was using all over the world. They weren't colonizing the world because they were inflating money. No, on the contrary, they were colonizing the world because the world wanted, well, not because of that, but their colonization was helped by the fact that they had a hard money that everybody wanted to use because you had the Bank of England in the 19th century was basically Bitcoin. It was the best thing, the closest thing they had to Bitcoin. You, you could walk into a bank in Bombay and send money to London, which is magic. That's that's why everybody wanted to be on the uh, sterling standard effectively. So I don't think that this is really the decisive factor. And I think the Ottoman Empire, I'm not sure about the history of banking and inflation over there, but I do know that the empire was an enormous amount of debt towards its final stages. It was already in a lot of debt and it was already behind technologically behind the European powers. It had a lot of land and it had a lot of soldiers, but in terms of technology, it was way behind other governments. And so it was much harder for it to compete. I'm not sure inflation would have helped. I think if they'd had inflation, they would have probably lost earlier. Any comments on Islamic governments turning to Bitcoin? That's a real hot potato and I need to be very careful how I answer it because I do need to travel from time to time to Middle Eastern countries. <laughs> um, 
they're going to be no different from you know the us and the uk in this regard bitcoin is a challenge to their monetary supremacy the middle east is essentially dollar based the ua currency for example is pegged to the us dollar and they have made some accommodation for cryptocurrency in general some interesting initiatives some fintech accelerators in their financial centers many of the underlying companies in those accelerators are cryptocurrency related in some way there's been a lot of talk about sharia compliant cryptocurrency there have been gold backed cryptos i don't believe in any of these by the way they don't make any sense to me i don't see why you have to have gold backing to be a sharia compliant cryptocurrency i think that's all part of this kind of marketing effort to make non bitcoin crypto seem attractive i maintain that you know bitcoin is the most sharia compliant form of money and i think middle east governments and islamic nations around the world would do well to recognize that sooner rather than later well thank you everybody for joining this has been an enormously fun conversation and a very informative thank you so much harris and i wish you all the best of luck on your work and efforts to continue to raise awareness of this question all the best thank you